0: Welcome to the Two Hip Podcast. This week's guest is an old friend who lives in the D.C. area. We went to school together, which at this point I feel like is everybody who's been on my podcast. But that's how it's going, you know, when you bootstrapping your own podcast. Nonetheless, he has uh, been working in the D.C. area. He also went to Georgetown. He worked for a very well-known California senator for many years, uh, which we'll get into. He's working at McGuire Whitney right now in D.C. And he's been involved with all sorts of interesting group, Huge volunteer, very politically active and also um, religiously active, and so I think we're going to talk about how all those things overlap and interweave, and it's going to be an interesting conversation. So without further ado, I would like to officially welcome Jackson Droney.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Danta.
0: I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited we get to catch up, and as with some of my guests in the past, it's it's one of those things where I haven't talked to you in a while, but I'm really excited to to dive into some real conversation here.
1: Yeah, me too. I've been looking forward to it.
0: Wonderful. Rather than me sort of stumble through your your resume, why don't I give you a chance to explain yourself? Explain yourself. The hostile segment where you explain you like you're on trial.
1: Yes, yes. An important segment in the show. <laughs> um, well, as you said, my name is Jackson Droney. I've lived here in the Washington D.C. area for about ten years. I spent seven years on Capitol Hill working as uh, advisor to Senator Barbara Boxer from California. Um, I've spent the last two plus years with a little firm called McGuire Whitney. Uh, we represent public power and cooperative utilities. Those are not-for-profit util- electric utility companies. Parts of the all over the country. Originally from Erie, Pennsylvania, I'm the oldest of four children. I think that that, as you know, Danton, that's a big part of who I am.
0: (laughs) Yes. The oldest, the oldest child. Yes, that's a a blessing and a curse. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's amazing how much that sibling dynamic plays into like who you become. In life, right?
1: Sure, sure. No, I think, you know, when you're the oldest, I think you you have the weight of the world on your shoulders all the time.
0: <laughs> and you also have, you have this, like, just impulsion to take the, the bull by the horns, kind of live life that way, right? You can't help it. Yeah. Yeah. I already see that in my son, you know, <laughs> and, and we only just have a second child, but already he's just that, that sort of personality. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a fun fun personality, and I think it it'll play into some of like how you answer things, all that. It's all sure, influences. Sure. This whole conversation is gonna come back to the sibling placement, right? <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. I think it's time for the two hypocrisy, two hypocrisy, like the recapture for authenticity, meant to be easy on humans, hard on hipster bots. But I, as I thought about it, I think
1: you know, there's been many moments i think where i have felt like um people expected me to have the answer to a problem the solution to a difficult situation or a time where i felt like you know like i needed to be strong or tough or be able to meet these expectations that people were putting on me or that i imagined people were putting on me and when in reality like i didn't have the answer and i i wasn't feeling particularly strong or tough or wise or or you know what have you? But I made something up that I thought sounded good. <laughs> and you know, so I like my you know goal in this conversation today is not to do that, but but to be <laughs> to be able to admit when I don't know something. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's hard though. I think that's like a, a thing that I don't know. I think everybody might struggle with that at different points. But I but I do think. I think there's a lot about like gender that is wrapped up in that. And and I think a lot about some of your previous guests have mentioned vulnerability, like about just being able to like accept and own when, when yeah. we aren't able mm-hmm. to, to be what people expect or when we're not able to even be what we expect ourselves to be. So, um, and then the other thing I, I thought of too, is like different moments in my life where like, silly things, like, like, basic things, like, where people are like, what's your favorite color? Or, like, what kinds (laughs) of, what kinds of things are you interested in? And and I, you know, remember being um, a child and being young, and my favorite color was pink. And I, I, like, knew that I couldn't tell people that my favorite color was pink, because they would all, they would all make fun of me, right? Yeah, yeah. As a a boy who liked the color pink, you know, and, and, you know, or when I was older, but, like, you know, like 13 or whatever. And I was really into Star Trek, but like, I couldn't admit to people that I liked <laughs> Star Trek because then they would, they would make fun of me and mock me. Right. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, I can point to a lot of things like that, where like I had to learn that it, like, the, you know, what was socially acceptable mm-hmm. for me to say and present myself in a way that like prevented ridicule and prevented, harassment or just general people making fun of me Um, and and yet like i wasn't being real about like who i really was and what i what i really liked so i think vulnerability is about admitting like the things that we don't know and the things that we're not good at but i think it's also about like really claiming the things that we like and the things about ourselves that make us who we are
0: yeah so yeah and it's it it doesn't always happen immediately. It takes a little time to embrace yeah. that. As, as I've, yeah. I've talked about with many guests now, it's one of those things that just as much <laughs> as you want to be that person in, you know, middle school or high school that's super confident, it's way right. harder, especially when you have a viewpoint that doesn't align with what like the societal norm at a given time period is you know exactly. and that's just yeah that's that's got to be so much harder to kind of come out of your shell there but i think that's a that's definitely a really good answer for this particular question and we could take that and run with it can, can you maybe talk more specifically about like what that that was i, I actually i find this really entertaining because the times i'm hoping have changed because my son claims to like pink and purple those are two of his favorite colors and he's oh, so he's glad three years old and more power to him. And there's not yeah. one moment where my wife and I has ever been like, why do you like pink or purple? You know, people are supposed to like, boys are supposed to like blue. Like, we've never said that in our house. Right. And I, I find pride in that. But occasionally I interact with a family member who will say, Leander, are you sure you don't like blue? Like, do you have other colors? And I'm like, ah, this you're, you're defeating the right. purpose of what we're trying to do here by not doing anything, by letting it just be a color that he's allowed to like. Um, right talk about what that meant to you. Like what, what, who is the person that you discovered and who were you, who were you hiding? I guess at the time that you are now, um, at, at like what, what personality are you trying to describe right now or aspects? Oh, I should say what gosh. aspects of your personality?
1: Um, well, I think, oh gosh, there's so many things to say. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that there is a, I think on the one hand, there's a side of my personality that is rather, um, affectionate and tender and gentle. And at the same time, there's a side of my personality that is more like we got shit. We got to do like, <laughs> you know, and I have, you know, I've, I've been a leader in a lot of different organizations that I've been a part of. And I, that the working with people and organizing people and leading organizations has always been something that has come as like a, a gift to me. And, and I think that, those leadership skills, how do you hold those two things in tension? Like while you're being this like strong leader at the same time that you have this more gentle kind of innocent side Mm -hmm. and, and how do you, how do you like work those two things together in a way that is authentic, a way that is real, a way that is. And let that be
0: you, let that be a part of you, both sides. Don't feel like you need to be one very specific narrow thing.
1: Exactly. And and so I, I think that that's like, like that's, always been sort of a hard thing. Cause I mm-hmm. think that, you know, I think people have, there's like popular notions of what leadership looks like and what it is and how um, people want to experience that or what, what people are just more comfortable with. And, and mm-hmm. then, and then, you know, there's things around the way we shame people for being vulnerable or for being, um, open and empathetic about who they are and what they value. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that it, so you gotta be like resilient. I mean, that's like my word uh, of, 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 the, of the current season resilience. Yes. <laughs> um, cause, cause I think there was a time earlier in my life where like, it was harder to be resilient, where it was harder to like experience those moments of rejection and those moments of like people reacting to me in a way that, um, I, I took it a lot, more personally and, and a lot more closer to heart than I, than I really think I need to. And, and now I know that okay. that's just not a lot of times it's people are reacting. It's about them more than it is about me.
0: Right. And, right. And, okay. and that's, does that make sense? Does that, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> okay. You know, it's kind of humanity, abstract, you know, but, but. yeah, yeah. Humanity is very difficult to sort of pin down in just a few words. I find myself repeating words or trying to like just find that right word to describe a certain situation it's very difficult but i like i like resilient and you know one of the first things that jumped out to me and you've had a fascinating career and i think we can we can get into that but when i when i saw authenticity i feel like i've I've gone very hard down the atheist camp and people who've listened to me have heard me talk about that but that doesn't mean i have friends that are all atheists and that i you know i want to have solely atheists on the show and (laughs) a very fascinating direction is that Two of your major volunteer experiences when I was kind of going through your, your uh, history are with GLASS, which is the Gay, Lesbian, and um, Allies Senate Staff Caucus, and then also the Luther Place Memorial Church, which is a Lutheran church organization. I found that really interesting because that I feel like a lot of people don't think that could be in the same person. So when you talk about that example, of two contradictory things existing in the same person, like there are two that jump out, and right now in the political world especially, those are two like really tense opposites as far as most sure. people are concerned. So how do you balance those two aspects of your life? Oh my goodness. Um, and I know, I, I mean, you can describe, I don't know how involved you are currently or if those are former. Oh, things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah,
1: I mean, glass was, is an organization that was formed back in 2004 in the United States Senate. It was a group of LGBT staffers. Um, people may, your listeners may recall that in 2004, that was when, uh, the Republican-controlled Senate at the time was trying to pass a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. President George W. Bush was urging that to happen as part of his re-election campaign that year. And some senators at the time said some very hateful things, I would say, on the floor of the Senate about gay people. And so a group of LGBT staffers, Democrats and Republicans got together and said that we wanted to create a space where, you know, LGBT people in the Senate could be themselves and could support one another. And also as a way to say to the the powers that be in the Senate that like, Hey, like you're saying that stuff. And like, we're right here. Like we're Mm -hmm. the ones sitting right next to you, staffing you preparing Mm -hmm. your talking points and your memos and your charts that you're taking down to the floor. Like right. you're talking about us and our families and who we are. And so that was very powerful. And so when I worked in the Senate, I started in 2010 and I, I got involved in glass. And so I still, I'm not, I'm not, I no longer, I'm a Senate employee. So I can't technically be a member, but I'm still invited to events and things and, and try to participate. Of and my views around inclusion and social justice, for me, they come from my faith. They come mm-hmm. from my faith in God and my, my, upbringing as a lutheran christian Um, and so when i came to dc part of what i wanted was to find a a spiritual community that that i could be part of and that brought me to luther place memorial church which is a historic congregation in downtown washington we have the distinction of being the the closest lutheran congregation to the white house Mm. (laughs) Um, and they were founded we were founded in 1873 in the wake of the civil war And the reason why it's called Memorial is because it's a memorial to reconciliation following the Civil War.
0: Mm, Okay,
1: yeah. There there were members of the congregation who had fought for the North, and there were members who had fought for the South. And they came together and created this congregation as a memorial to peace and justice
0: following Mm. that divisive conflict.
1: Like, so raw. Right, and like Um, right
0: on the line of like where everything's kind of happening there.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so for a long time at Luther Place, this sense of reconciliation and justice has been woven into the DNA of the congregation. Mm. Um, following the 1968 riots after Martin Luther King was assassinated, um, you know the area of the city by where Luther Place is located was basically destroyed. It was completely burned down. The whole you know, blocks of the city were ruined. and there were a lot of homeless, mostly African American women, um, in the neighborhood that like didn't have anywhere to live, and Luther Place opened its doors and, and took people in, and eventually uh, created End Street Village, which today is the largest provider of homelessness assistance to women in the District of Columbia. Wow. Oprah came to the End Street Gala a few years ago and gave a million dollars on the spot. So. <laughs> Like wow. it's come a long way from yeah, from, yeah, okay. from the days where people were sleeping in the hallway of the church. So that is just a great, I think, example of the kinds of things that are p- possible in spiritual community, mm, like mm-hmm. re- reaching across divides that seem impossible to cross, and and really engaging in your neighborhood and, and in a community that like needs help. And, and I think for me, the call of Christian community is about looking around and discerning together what what is the fertile ground that we are invited to sow Mm -hmm. and like what's ours to do here and like how how do we contribute to this this you know wholeness that that the world longs for so yeah that so that's that is why i you know was against the war in iraq and why i believe that we have to do something about climate change and why i you know favored LGBT rights before I even knew I was gay. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it, it was that formation of who I am that led me to the politics that I embrace.
0: Right. Um, and not this community. Other, it's all about the bigger community, really. right? Like it's right, about embracing right. that community and extending, like you said, extending that arm out to help everyone, regardless mm-hmm. of what that, that community may be or what they may believe in sort of specifically. Right. Right. That's, yeah. You
1: know, it's, I think getting, I think we're, Christianity goes off the rails in my opinion is where it gets lost in these feudal debates around interpreting arcane or obscure passages of scripture, you know, or judging one another about who is more right than someone else. And I mean, mm-hmm. all, all of that is just like why people are so over Christianity and why I think it has such a bad name. I think not to like preach on your program, (laughs) but I was just going to say that like, you know, one of the most famous things I think that Jesus ever said was that, you know, they will know that you are followers of me by how much you love one another. Mm, mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that's how Christians were known by how much love they show people.
0: Right. Right.
1: In fact, it's so often the opposite.
0: It's unfortunate, but yes.
1: And, and so that's why for me as a gay person, as a person who's politically aware, I do think it's important that I that I am more public about my beliefs and uh, about that part of who I am because I want to show people that that's not what Christianity is about. It's not what Jesus is about. It's not what what so many of us that are in these communities in Washington and all over the world are are, are seeking to do together. So I, I just I think it's important for listeners to know that.
0: Yeah. Definitely. I, I think I, if I'm being real with myself, as, as I, I sort of put the label atheist sometimes, but I also go to a universalist Unitarian church that I've mentioned once or twice. And the reason, the bigger reason, is for community, for that space to talk. And they're very politically involved compared to some other different religions, whatever, and, and extremely involved in a lot of extending that hand out to people who need help, regardless of LG. BT whether they support that or not or other aspects of their life that's sort of what what brought my wife and I into it more than than any like specific belief and i also appreciate that you as a as a modern christian i'll say <laughs> um you know you can understand and appreciate where where the belief came from but also understand that in modern times like you need to have the perspective of what that means in modern times you know it's it's about the teachings of of a of a system rather than uh, the specific sort of semantics of of text, you know? Right, and I think we, that's a big difference that more people should embrace regardless of their, their religious belief.
1: We would say that that is a, it's a living
0: word, right?
1: Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Like, it's, it's alive, so it has implications for the here and now. I, I would say there's like a lot of Christian denominations and I would say this is about Judaism and, and other world religions too, that, that have embraced, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of communities. I mean, the, the Lutheran denomination that I am a part of has embraced LGBT folks for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, women are fully equal in our denomination. There's not like some of the,
0: I feel like I have to say some of this stuff sometimes because I think people, <laughs> but like, those places where there's still like, not women, you know, preachers.
1: Right. Right. And, and so I do, I want people to know that I don't want people thinking, Oh, Jackson, he's like some self loathing gay person who's part of this organization
0: that like is judging him and like, no, like it's not part, it's not, he's, that he's like slogging himself well, in all the right, alleyway since, a, no, after I, every sermon.
1: I, I want, right. I just want people to know that, like, no, I am fully embraced and accepted <laughs> as I am. And, and that is a wonderful gift and, and I wouldn't be part of it if that were not. So,
0: yeah. So I think this, this all translates to just your activism. You, I mean, from when you were <laughs> being politically active, you know, on a drunken Saturday night in our in our dorm room together, to to today, I still think you have that, that that spark of just motivation to help other people. And I'm kind of I'm curious how that all relates to kind of what you're working on. I do want to talk before we talk about the present. I do I'm really curious about your time a little bit more detail with um, Senator Boxer. So just again for everybody, Senator Barbara Boxer was. Um, who preceded Kamala Harris, which everyone's like talking about now. So, I, and again, I'm sure most people know who Barbara Boxer is, but if you don't, she was kind of a significant Senator, uh, the state of California. So very, you know, very large state, lots of input, lots of voices that she's trying to listen to. And I think she had a very fascinating career still, still has a very fascinating career. Um, so I'm curious like what that whole experience was like. Oh, it was awesome.
1: I mean, it was, uh, it was fantastic. I like it. Um, you know, when I was at Syracuse, I, I did the Washington D.C. semester where I got to come to D.C. Oh, that's take, right. Yeah, okay. Take class here in the evening, and um, a requirement of the semester was to get an internship. And so I applied to a whole bunch of internships. I really wanted to intern on in Capitol Hill. I was into politics and knew that I wanted to do that. And you know, I applied to a whole bunch of different internship programs in different offices, and I applied to. Barbara Boxer, and, and you know, people might remember. You know, <laughs> some of our friends might remember. She was one of my heroes. She was one of the people <laughs> yes. who I just loved um, when I, when I was in, in school, in high school, and in, and in college. And I did not expect to get that internship. I figured, you know, there are millions of people from California. Why on earth would they take someone from Syracuse University to? You <laughs> know, to intern in their <laughs> office, but it turned out like the stars magically aligned where they didn't get a lot of applicants that, um, that semester, and so they took me and I got to intern there for the whole you know, semester and made a lot of good friendships and relationships with people mm-hmm. there and, mm-hmm. um, stayed in touch with people. And when I graduated, I, I came back to DC and there was a job opening, I was thrilled, and I applied, and I did not get it that was disappointing. (laughs) Um, And so I, you know, when I was a senior at Syracuse, I was working at the gap at Carousel mall. And so I had transferred my employment to a store in the DC area and I was working there and, and I was trying to pick up as many hours as I could because it's so expensive to live in Washington and I'm applying to jobs whenever I can. And all these jobs in Capitol Hill I'm applying for and applying for and I'm not getting anywhere. And I, Maybe would get a response. Maybe would get one random interview and never hear anything after that. Right. <laughs> um, well, then months go by. It's like nine months and another opening occurs in the
0: boxer office. So I apply and <laughs> this <time> Determination. I, <laughs> right. This what, time, what was your word earlier? Resilient. Resilience. That's
1: right. <laughs> That's right. And yeah. And so that time they, they brought me in for an interview and I, I met with everyone and that was great. And then I, well, then I didn't hear anything and then I didn't hear anything and I like kept emailing. I felt like, oh my God, I'm going to drive them crazy and emailing them and asking them. <laughs> well, I think like maybe it was two and a half months went by
0: Man, and then rough. finally
1: they called me in for a second round. Um, it turned out the, the chief of staff had been on maternity leave. So they had to, <laughs> they had to wait. So she came back It had nothing to do with them not liking me. Um, and then they offered me the job and I started. Wonderful. And so I started in March of 2010 which in politics means that I started right before the passage of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. (laughs) And I like to say it was crazy ever since (laughs) Um, because you would think that passing healthcare reform was like the most horrible thing anyone had ever done in the United States Congress. At least (laughs) it felt that way at the time. Um, People lost their freaking mind. Oh yes. The things people said there was, there was a sign That was left, like, outside of the office building that a protester had left that said, um, I walked by it, and it said, healthcare reform will be Obama's Holocaust. (laughs) Wow. And I was just like, one, I don't even understand what that means. I'm so confused. I mean, are we... (laughs) Are they talking about death panels? They must have been. I mean, it was like a whole thing.
0: That's a stretch. Um, <laughs> a little bit. It was
1: awful. So I like I you know I I could have walked past the sign and I went no I can't just walk past the sign, so I took the sign and I like destroyed it, because <laughs> I was like I do not want anyone else to read this ridiculous sign. <laughs> it's like not worth anyone's time. Yeah, so I, I've been defending the Affordable Care Act ever since.
0: <laughs> I guess my question and politics just always seems like one of those worlds it's probably up there in my mind with the sort of Hollywood elite world where, where you get a lot of like pretending a lot of sales pitches, a lot of like people not being real. So how did you, how do you feel like you stayed true to yourself in the midst of all that chaos?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, (laughs) it is, it is hard, right? Like it is really hard. And you know, it's also like I say, you know, it was a wonderful, great time, but it certainly didn't always feel that way. Um, (laughs) And it didn't feel that way for a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, yeah, you have all the haters who are going to hate, you know. But, you, but congressional staffers make no money. They make absolutely no money. You're, you're. I actually made more money at the Gap <laughs> than I did when I started in the Boxer office. Ooh, man, you know, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, people wonder why Congress is dysfunctional and why like you know twenty three year olds run the government. Well, that's why. Mm, because mm-hmm. no one else could afford to work there. Yeah you know, unless you're one of the very senior people, but you know, you, you, you do it cause you want the experience and, and you do get to do a lot of amazing things that you otherwise wouldn't really get to do in a lot of other settings. Mm. But yeah, I mean like there's people, you know, like people, but I think, I guess to your, to your question, like people can tell who the fake people are. Like people can, t- like people in politics are all very cynical <laughs> like, and they all can see through the bullshit.
0: Because I well, always, but, but I feel like that's, you know. that's the people that are running everything sort of behind the scenes, yeah. but the, the people who are out doing the sort of the more public image people, like that side of it, I feel like that's where you actually see more of the facades where it's harder to know what's true and what's not. But you guys are in the midst of it. Like you're seeing all the day to day, you're seeing everything behind the scenes. You probably got a really good sense of when there's bullshit and when there's not.
1: Right. I think, yeah, I think that's true. And, and so I think in that sense for our day to day, like it, it, you just kind of know, like, you kind of just like, okay, yeah, that's not real.
0: They're just right. saying like, they have to say that. And, yeah, okay. they're trying to spin something or right. they're trying to do this or that. Yeah. And
1: like, and there's a
0: place for that.
1: Like, I, I think sometimes people expect everyone to be so perfectly honest. Well, you, you shouldn't lie and you shouldn't be dishonest, right? But at the same time, you do have to sort of watch what you say and, and create enough space, mm. you know, to have a con, you know, a compromise with the other side or to build a coalition towards something. You can't just go in like hard charging, pounding the table, demanding your way. Mm. You, you know, you have to go in and you have to make overtures and you have to like lay down options and alternatives and you have to speak in a way, yeah. present yourself in a way that you can forge and develop that consensus and that coalition to get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, people view that activity, that consensus building and coalition building as like selling out or as you're, you're not being pure enough. You're not, you know, you don't care enough because you're willing to, to water down in their eyes, what you're saying. And I I think it varies on, on what issue we're talking about, but, but I I generally, I don't, I don't think that's, that criticism is really fair because you try to get a hundred people to agree on something.
0: Yeah. And and especially something so like the, the narrower that definition is, it's really hard. You know, I was talking with someone, I guess just about like creative writing. And like when you're writing something, there's this line of, of balance where you want to be, you know, you want to tie to people. You want to have something that's relatable and real, but you also want to be generic enough (laughs) that like it relates to more people than maybe your regular audience base. So like if you have too many pop culture references or too many things that like throw people off or, or you have too much going on, it can be distracting. And if you have not enough going on, it feels like there's nothing there or you're too rigid you really it's all about balance right you have to find that sweet spot and I it sounds politically very similar where you're just trying to find the sweet spot where you have to have a little bit of wiggle room you can't have something that's so hardline in the public eye and the way it gets distilled to most people they just get that this person believes this period but that's never the case you know people have have very gray belief systems and even politicians you know they're not it's not just they believe this it's Oh, I believe this, and I feel like this is the best path to it because these people are on board for it, and it's a whole collaboration it's, that's happening behind the scenes, and we're just getting it distilled down to one sentence. I feel like, or one byline. Did for you sure. feel like? Do you still feel like your that's like a frustrating thing to be caught up in on the day to day, or you're you're sort of saying that you're okay with it? You understand that it's part of how it works.
1: I think I think it still can be frustrating, but but I think for the most part, I do understand. I think that in our particular present moment, it can be, I would say very challenging because I think we're dealing in a, in a political situation where like there are no more, like all the regular rules don't apply.
0: <laughs> there's no more truths. There's and, no more
1: reality. There's right. Like it's, all, down, down news, is up. Yeah. it's all like not real. Like he <laughs> can do anything and say anything. He can shoot someone on fifth Avenue and they <laughs> won't care. Like it's like, that like but like seriously so so like i think jet like pre-trump yes like i i agree i think we're we're we are in a different moment now and but i guess what i would say to like progressives to democrats you know, don't get in a circular firing squad and shoot yourselves because you think that you know your colleagues or your you know your your comrades in arms aren't being as pure as you want them to be like Like that, that, that serves no one, but the Mm. other side. Like, Mm -hmm. so if I, if I'm thinking, if I'm, you know, if I'm being partisan, then that's what I would say. Like, you know, I think that you have to understand where the other side is coming from. Even if you don't agree, you have to try to put yourself in their shoes and see it from their point of view to be able to work with them. And I think what's interesting about this moment is like Republicans are, they're really in this like awful situation. I, I kind of feel bad. Like, They absolutely detest everything that Democrats do. They always have, right? That's not new. But then they have this guy that they're all kind of like supposed to get behind. And I think a lot of them really don't like him, don't like what he stands for, but they feel like it's the zero sum, that they can't speak out against him because if they do, they're helping Democrats. So like as a Democrat, like what would I advise a Democrat to do in in a situation like that? It's very hard. It's like, it makes it really hard to, to work with, with someone on the other side when, when they're thinking about it in such zero sum terms. Um, Uh I mean, I think, look, I think of what happened with Brett Kavanaugh um, as an example of, of incredibly zero sum thinking. And that's where we are today. That like, we're in a, in a time where that's how one side of our political equation is operating. Look, you know, Democrats aren't blameless. They're not perfect. They never have been, but I, it's my personal view and belief that the Democrats are generally more diverse as a party in terms of not just in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, sexual orientation, but also just in terms of their ideas. There's a greater range of thought mm. on the democratic side than there is on the Republican side. And so, you know, that that's why it's a little bit harder, I think, for Nancy Pelosi to corral all of her caucus together than it was for the Republicans. But but I think it, it, it does position us well to be able to, to be flexible to work with Republicans on where they are.
0: Right. But so, if they're, so just to sort of side, take a tangent yeah, for a second. Yeah, yeah. So who do you think, and you don't have to be specific with a name, I mean, like, what type of person do you think has the best chances of competing with Trump in the next election. Like I've seen a lot of uh, people in the the democratic pool right now that um, are, are selling uh, centrism, right. And like selling this like moderate Democrat or like more conservative Democrat angle. Do you, do you think that like they need to sort of corral and pretend you want to talk about inauthenticity? We were tied back to sort of that, the sort of show that you're talking about putting on here, you know, the political show, what kind of person, do we anticipate of sort of being able to even compete at the level, the next election, presidential election? Oh, I think it's a
1: great question. I think that's the question
0: Democrats have to wrestle with right now. I think, Mm -hmm.
1: but I think if we step back, you know, and you look at this, I think there are what, 13 declared nominees right now, potential nominees declared that's Uh, just now.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: So, and there's more that have not, that are likely to get in that haven't declared. I think, You know, Democrats are pretty much in agreement on social issues, right? Like when it, you know, this past month in February, the House passed the first gun control measure in over 20 years. There, That used to be a very divisive issue among Democrats. I don't think Mm -hmm. it really Mm -hmm. is anymore. I think we're pretty much on board with gun control. I think Democrats are on board with LGBT rights, um, with abortion and contraception and you know, I think we, every Democrat I see out there wants to do something to reduce carbon emissions, to, you know, rein in the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. I think that the issues where we're a little bit more, where there's a greater range tend to be on the economic issues, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be whether what, what people want to do in terms of healthcare and taxation and spending on a you know, in different programs and investments, et cetera. And, and I think even there, I don't know that there are really much substantive differences. It really is sort of about packaging and presentation and, and the tone that different candidates are taking. Like, yeah. you know, I think every Democrat that's running is going to want to pass some type of healthcare reform that expands coverage, right? We, we got Obamacare. That's wonderful. It's great. But even, Obamacare means that there are 20 million people that still don't have health insurance.
0: Right. Yeah. Um,
1: So like, how do we reduce that number? I think all the candidates are going to look at ways to do that. I think we're going to look at at our, at our tax system and see all these inequities that, that persist across socioeconomic and classes and, and look at why good paying jobs aren't around the way that they used to be and why investment in, in communities like, where I'm from in Erie, Pennsylvania haven't, haven't had the kind of success and attention perhaps that they deserve from the federal government mm-hmm. um, investments in transportation and infrastructure, all of that. But how do we do those things? How much money are we willing to spend? Republicans have no problem spending $1.5 trillion on a tax cut, but Oh no. Oh God, we want to build roads and bridges and help you know average people. Oh, we can't do that. That's irresponsible. Well, what, are the Democrats going to fall into that trap, or are they how or how are they going to thread the needle? How are how are they going to explain why those things are necessary? I think some of them will do it in a more aggressive, uh, assertive, combative way, and I think mm-hmm. you see that in like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris. And I think some of them will try to do it in a more like Clintonian triangulation, softer touch kind of way.
0: Right, and I, th- yeah. and I
1: think and I think you see that in. Like Amy Klobuchar, Governor Hickenlooper from Colorado just declared it right. will he prob- probably be like that. And maybe Joe Biden if he gets in the race, right? But I think at the end of the day, they're all going to try to do the same thing once they're there. It's just yeah. going to be about like who really can take it to Trump. Who really can bring the game to him and not fall into his traps and not fall into his games and not look weak in front of yeah. everyone because that's like, you know, you still have to worry
0: about that shit. I also have another thought here. So so yeah, the other yeah. thing, too, is that the Democrats had a, had a lot of success <laughs> with diversity, right? A lot of different types of people now in office. And But it. here's one of the interesting things I've heard some people talking about. To, to sort of take it to the the Republicans, I've heard a lot of people saying, and this is terrible sort of situation to be in. But that the person who's going to have the most success is like an older white man, which is exactly who you probably don't want, like in the long run. But do you make this sort of sacrifice as a party to push for someone who is like the stereotype of what has ever been in politics ever, right? Like (laughs) Republican Democrat has always been like old white men, right? So like do you push for that person who happens to be a Democrat just to sort of have someone who can maybe appeal to Republicans while also appealing to, to Democrats. or? Do you just go hard and push for like Camilla Harris? Do you push for her? Do you push for more diversity? Do you push, you know, push for someone who's going to maybe oppose more of the Republican viewpoint? Like, you know, you talk about striking that balance. Where do you find the balance in that uh, pursuit? Yeah,
1: I think it's interesting. I think my view is, and again, this is just, this is just Jackson speaking. I mean, <laughs> but I, I, I think you're entitled we, to your view. We can't, I don't think the democratic party is ever going to have two white guys on the ticket again. Right. I really think that that day is over. And I, so, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a white male nominee, but I think that if that were the case, you would have to balance that with the the VP, uh-huh. right? Like there would, and, and so, you know, I hope that Democrats won't get stuck on, on like those questions of identity. I, I think they're really important. And I think that's that is what distinguishes Democrats from Republicans is the broad tent that we have the -hmm. the way that we are open to everyone. But I don't think if you don't like Bernie Sanders or you don't like Joe Biden, or you don't like, you know, Beto or Rourke, don't like them because of the views that they stand for. Don't like them because of the policies. Don't just vote against them because they're white guys and the same, the other direction. Don't just, you know, vote for Kamala because she's an, you know, a woman of color. Like, yeah. I think that I, I think that's
0: know. I think that's the viewpoint on that side of the aisle. But I think the other side is gonna gonna see it differently. They're gonna they are gonna see that they're a person that's different and they're gonna call that out. You know, they're gonna ask for the birth certificate and say that they're from Kenya or whatever
1: and <laughs> right, you know, right. and
0: it's gonna be like a target on their back and they'll fight through it. And and I hope that regardless we get we get the right person in there at the end of the day, as you pointed out, regardless right. of what the situation is, and that that's hopefully the direction it goes in. But yeah, I feel like you just have the more difference that exists between the, the people, the, the more of a target they become. I feel like, which is unfortunate. Sure, but sure. I feel like no, that's the path it could go down. I, I think I think that's
1: that's an accurate assessment.
0: I think that that we're. The women candidates
1: have already experienced sexism on the trail. Mm, we course. know the candidates of color are—you are, know—that's coming. They all need to know that it's coming. But I think the people that vote based on that, like, they're not going to vote for a Democratic nominee no matter what. You know, the, the, the
0: people <laughs> that, that yeah. like
1: like—they're just not. They're like, and and I think we shouldn't waste our time and energy.
0: And we should, we shouldn't that. we shouldn't as as you point sort of pointed out, we shouldn't water down a pool of good candidates and try to appeal to something like that no. and just because no. that's sort of what they want ultimately. You know, why, why are we trying to call it all that? Right. sacrifice our beliefs and right. this idea of openness and accepting anybody just for the sake of sort of appealing to them? Yeah, that's a good point.
1: And I think there's, you know, one, one thing that's interesting is there are, I can't remember. It's, it's quite a large number of ca- of counties that went for Barack Obama twice and then went for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a lot of them are located in, like, Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and, and Pennsylvania and other, like, you know, Midwest kind of Rust Belt states. And these are, like, by far majority white counties. Right. So, like, it's not that there are, you know, so I, I think there are voters out there that are open to a Democratic nominee of color or, you know, maybe, maybe. I think, I don't even want to say maybe, I think it's true that I think that Hillary Clinton faced incredible amount of sexism. And I think that the exit polling bore you know, showed that she didn't get any benefit really for being a woman candidate right? Um, in in the way that, you know, the African American community did rally around Barack Obama as the nominee from their community. So I don't know. I think, I think that there, but I think that, that's where the power of ideas and the and the and the power of like on the ground organizing comes into play. I think that you could look at those counties and those areas. Would that have changed anything? I think that's going to be a question for whoever the nominee is to, to explore.
0: Right. So now let's tie it back in and, and try to keep staying on the vein of uh, authenticity. Sort of trying to find the truth, <laughs> the truth yeah. in um, in a world where there's a lot of fake things. How does this relate to your day to day job? Are you do you feel like you're you're a pitch man for the truth. Is that like, are you trying to push the truth? Are you trying to advocate for things that are, what is real and what, what's important? Or do you feel like you're leaning in, in sort of the more stereotypical direction of what would be defined as a lobbyist? Like, how do you define your job?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, some days I tell people I am an advocate. (laughs) Some some days I'll say I'm a consultant and then some days I'm just real and I just say I'm a lobbyist. (laughs) But, but I think that, you know, I'm lucky because I, I lobby for, like I said, municipal and cooperative electric companies. And so these are not for profit, right? Um, electric companies in mostly small communities, although there are some large ones, particularly in California. Uh, not all. I'm not mentioned, these are not necessarily my clients, but like the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power is the largest public power utility in the country. And a lot of what I what I like about representing these organizations is that they are, you know, they're really focused on their communities. They're focused on economic development in their communities. They're focused on providing electricity that is affordable and reliable to their communities, and um, that's something that we all benefit from. And it's something, and it has implications on the environment, right? right. Like how how utilities um, operate is directly related to carbon emissions, and so a lot of them are very carbon conscious and, and very much want to operate in ways that reduce their carbon footprint. And they want to be at the table as those conversations around what to do about climate change are happening. And, and you know, when you're a utility, you're thinking 30, 40, 50 years ahead of ahead of time. So, like, okay. a lot of these guys have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. They all accept that climate change is real and they are like looking at how do how do we deal with this? They, you know, okay, Trump will roll back the clean power plan or pull us out of the Paris Agreement. But most of of the utility folks that I work with and speak with will say that they know at some point we are going to have a federal carbon program, whether it's a cap and trade system, whether it's a carbon tax, whether it's some other tra- type of government mechanism that's going to rein in our emissions. And so how do we plan for that now? It's easier to do it now
0: than it's going to be to do it 20 years from now. Right, if you have everything in place, you're already manufacturing or, or whatever the, whatever your product is. I'm not necessarily right. your your right. specifically, but whatever it is, if you're, you know, an auto company is one that comes to mind. Like if you're manufacturing cars, right. there's a lot there's already the shift for EV and like hybrid and plug-in exactly. and all these different types of cars that don't rely on fossil fuel. Like the fact that that's happening like industry-wide not just in the in the US, but the whole world really right now is fantastic because it, it means that the trend is finally caught on to the point where this is, they see it happening because the scale of these companies, you know, is gigantic. Sure. They are very aware what's happening. And as you pointed out, they, they, they're looking at the future. They're looking further out for, yeah. to see when yeah. these, these moments are going to happen. And and they have to plan several, you know, I wouldn't even say years, like a decade or more in advance just for to release a car line, you know, for right. example. So, right. yeah, you, you completely need to be aware of what's happening. And if you don't lean in early, you're going to be the one that's suffering at the end of the day. That's right. That's right.
1: And, and a lot of it, too, is, like, market-driven. Like, coal is just no longer viable. The reason why coal is struggling in America today is not because of any green policy that's out there. It's because natural gas is cheaper. And mm-hmm. that's, yeah. a mar- that's a market driven outcome and you know so for all the you know like libertarian right-leaning conservatives who love markets i mean that's why coal is not is not doing so well right now right and also there is a greater demand for renewables people particularly i would say out west in california there, there is a desire for more wind and solar people want it and people expect their utilities to help them get it yeah um and and so the more that that just changes the more that the public Demands that kind of response from your utility, the more you're going to see it shift. At the same time, I do think like we got to be real. You know, wind and solar aren't going to eliminate like natural gas and other base load sources, nuclear, um, overnight. It's not going to happen tomorrow. We're not going to have 100% renewable, um, energy resources out of like in 10 years. Like that's just right. not, that's not at this time. The technology just isn't there, but we are getting there. I mean, there's a it's great... It's more the great...
0: infrastructure, I think, than anything else, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting
1: battery storage and, and other things. I mean, we're, we're moving there. And and there is some good things that are happening around small modular reactors for nuclear that it's quite interesting. So no, I don't feel like I'm like selling out. I don't feel like I'm <laughs> you know working for the man. Uh, and then I, I get to do interesting work in a space that I think does have a meaningful impact on communities and on and on, you know, the broader environment, I like, yeah. So I, I think that that's, I guess that's how I would answer that. I, I think it's not as like, grand, right? Like right. it's not as grand as being in the Senate. It's not as flashier as like, you know, dramatic a, as it was there, but that's yeah. okay. Like, I think, I think sometimes that it's good to step back and realize like that most of the change that's going to happen and the, the sustainable change, like another, I think, good buzzword is sustainability. Right. <laughs> it means that like, Things have to happen in places besides Washington D.C., New York, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Like there have to be people that are engaging on all of these important issues, whether it's climate change, economic equity, and all the things that that matter.
0: I think those are all valid points. I think I have I have one like big sort of question I want to ask at the end. We'll get to that in a minute. But before that, I think this actually is starting to wind down. Unfortunately, Jackson. Ah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been fun catching up. Yeah, it's but- been good. I think uh, I think this is bringing us to our next segment, which Mm -hmm. is donations. Donation directions. Directions on where and how to donate your donations. I mentioned
1: earlier that um, the church that I'm a part of Luther Place Memorial Church has a long history of community engagement and social justice activism. And. That's manifested itself in a variety of ways over the 145 years that the congregation has been around. And more recently, uh, the congregation has been uh, involved in developing what we call the Beloved Community Incubator. And this is an incubator that supports co-ops that share a vision of racial and economic equity and unlikely relationships. One of the uh, organizations that the incubator is currently working with is i'm pulling it up right now it's called dulce hogar cleaning cooperative and so this is a group of latino women in the neighborhood around the area at luther place who have come together and they have created their own co-op for home cleaning and they um run their own business we this came out of a a community-wide listening campaign where we found that a lot of people employed by like household cleaning services were being taken advantage of and mm. being um, yeah, discriminated against, um, oh, right. yeah. not, not, not treated fairly in terms of their wages and their hours and their scheduling. Um, and so the incubator kind of co- has helped them create their own co-op and is helping them kind of get up on their feet to be their own self-sustaining organization. And so we, we need support for that. Um, of course, and, yeah. And I'm happy to provide a link. Um, yes, yeah, so we'll include you could, the link. That you could add. Um, it is with fellowship fellowshiponegiving.com.
0: Okay, is, is the website and yeah, I can, I can, can send you more. We'll uh, include the link in the, in the podcast yeah. description. Thank you. Yeah, One final question I like to ask at the end, a sort of a heavy, heavy moment here that right. I put all the pressure on you so I don't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> to all the listeners in the world, which uh, how would you how would you tell or recommend that these people be the most authentic version of themselves?
1: Well, I think, I I have, I think two, two things come to mind. And I think one is I will just say from, in my experience, it's important to make time for myself to be with myself, to listen to myself. And so I, I need me time to reflect and really think about and process who I am, like what my reaction is to something or what my opinion is about something or uh-huh. what I like or don't like about something. And, Otherwise, if I'm not grounded in that knowing or in that, that listening to myself, I might just react out of my ego or out of an impulse that really isn't my best self, my full, true, authentic self. Right. So I would say, like, you know, sometimes it's better to, like, uh, take a pause and just be and, and and who am I really? What do I really think about this or, or what? How do I really want to show up in this space right now? Like, as to be my to be my full self what what do i need to be my real self here you know the other thing i think of is um the singer pink has that song glitter in the air uh-huh. and there's that lyric in the song have you ever thrown a fistful of glitter in the air it's quite interesting it's about courage and about facing facing our fears facing the fears that we put on ourselves that the pressures that people are putting on us and just staring it in the face and saying, "I don't
0: care. I'm going to mm. be who I am." Right. <laughs> I like that. It's a good way to end. That's been this has been a wonderful podcast. Wonderful talking to you, Jackson. Um, thank you so much. Yeah,
1: thank you, Danton. It's been, it's been great. My pleasure.
0: And to all the listeners out there, I wanted to say thank you for listening. There's twohippodcast.com/slash uh, subscribe has everything you can follow on, listen all the platforms. And as always, if you have comments, feedback, guest recommendations, questions, segments, anything like that, just want to talk, please send me a message, dot hippodcastcom slash contact or 2HipPodcast at 2 It's pretty simple. And I just want to thank everyone again for listening. This has been the 2Hip Podcast.